Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hello and welcome to Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 231. From our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, well, on this week's edition of the podcast, a couple of uh, fine conversations for you. A little bit later on, best-selling author David Baldacci will visit with us. What have you done this year? David's just published his third book of the year. I started to clean out a closet, <laughs> but didn't quite finish. That's... Uh, <laughs> But we all have our own goals there. Uh, David's got a brand new book, and we'll talk about that, uh, the writing process, literacy, and more. Coming up, the new book is called Long Shadows. Up first, though, my goodness, what a what a, a couple of years it's been for Heather Cox Richardson, historian, uh, professor at Boston College, Maine resident, who uh, began communicating her letters from an American, and it's become a phenomenon. I believe I read over a million subscribers get that daily newsletter from Heather to have her interpret what's happening in the world through the lens of history. Uh, she's also the co-host of a terrific podcast with her friend Joanne Freeman as well. And the author of a, a wonderful book, How the South Won the Civil War, and a new book in the works that should be out in about a year or so. Let's give a listen to our conversation with Heather Cox Richardson here on downtown. Thank you for being with us today. And by the way, uh, happy belated birthday. Thank you. It's been quite a four weeks between getting married, finishing a book, and turning 60 all in four weeks. I tell you, I need to stop and take a breath. I would say so. You know, what was the most traumatic of uh, all those events? It's la- honestly, the lack of time. Mm. Because it's it was one thing to write 1,200 words a night, every night, on the letters. But when I added a book on top of that, that was really uh, barely doable, if that. And then when you add on top of that, you know, family and friends and a wedding and then um, then a, a, a milestone birthday, it's been pretty busy. I would say so. So I have to ask, I see the letters come in early in the morning sometimes. Usually if I have insomnia, I'm like, well, Clearly, Heather's still working. When in the world do you sleep? (laughs) Well, sadly, if it's a very late night like that, I have often fallen asleep head down on the table, which I think is so freaking (laughs) grim. Um, But, you know, otherwise, I I sleep, you know, from whenever the letters are done, two or three, and and before midnight the last two nights, which is what I'm always aiming for, until, you know, 7.30 or so. And then I, I... you know, I can't do it forever, but so far, so good. I, you know, when I set out to do them, I didn't, first of all, intend to set out to do them. But at first, they were just very short roundups of what I had seen. And they have gotten far more sophisticated and far more wide-reaching in the last three years. And I also said that I would only do them for a few months. And then only 100 <laughs> days into Biden's presidency. And now, you know, who knows? But, uh, you know, I keep saying it's not sustainable. But so far, it's been sustainable for more than three years. Well, and you put so much work into it and time, and then, you know, let's be honest, people get really excited. For you, I think, mostly when you, you decide to take a night off and post one of Buddy's beautiful photographs. 
Yeah, well, I started doing that actually because of that. I was we were out hiking in the West, I think in Zion, and I was just too, I was just exhausted. I mean, I was falling asleep sitting up, and so I had happened to take a really nice picture that day of Zion, and I said, I just can't tonight. You know, this is what I'm doing you know, please hold on for another day. And people responded so positively. I thought, wait, it's not just me who needs a break. It's everybody else who needs a break. And that's sort of become part of the institution now, buddy or friends. I mean, lots of people want me to advertise um, (laughs) uh, uh, photographers on the site, and I just can't get into that. So it's usually friends who say, here, you want this one? And, you know, sometimes I say yes, and up it goes. Also, love the podcast that you do uh, with our friend Joanne Freeman uh, now and then. The best part of it is it feels like you're sitting in a room with two incredibly smart, funny friends. Oh, we have such a good time, you know, and it just we do it over Zoom so we can actually see each other's faces. And she, you know, she's so understated about so much. And she'll be like, well, you know, when they did this, it was a problem. And I'm like, (laughs) Joanne, they killed people. It's like more than a problem. (laughs) I get this look on my face and she's like, I believe Heather wants to talk now. (laughs) I I was just listening to uh, the new one today. So uh, you didn't know who Lizzo was, huh? I did not. Joanne did. But I knew the origins of rap music. Uh, I knew about turntabling. So I that's my redemption on that right. one. And that one was so much fun to talk about how people make music at um, whatever it takes to make music. And what I really loved about this episode on how people have made music and then co-opted music and, and the history of that was the steel drum. I mean, mm-hmm. people in Trinidad were told they couldn't use percussion. So first they turned to these these drums that they use. So first they turned to bamboo and then they turned to oil drums. I just, I love that. Like not in a million years could I be like, oh, look, an oil drum. I know I can turn that into an instrument. <laughs> and it just, I, I that, was, that was one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. Well, and when you talk about music too, and I've talked about this with, with students in my history classes before, the, the whole idea that what we think of as rock and roll essentially was an amalgam of Delta blues that blacks brought with them as they migrated to the north and southern, largely white country music. And that that combination of the two created this new hybrid sound. Well, it was interesting when we were talking about banjos because the, the construction of the banjo from whatever was at hand was very much like what Robert Johnson did. Mm. And he went down to the crossroads, of course. There's this great question of what did he do when he disappeared for a little over a year, I think it was, and came back home incredibly talented on the guitar. And there's a wonderful documentary about Robert Johnson called Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, which last I knew was actually on um, on YouTube, I think, or, or maybe it's somewhere easily accessible. It's a little over an hour. And they actually demonstrate how people in his town used to create an essentially a rudimentary guitar um, through strings hanging on a wall. And that's what made me think of it. It's like if you could get a musical genius like Robert Johnson and 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 give him a wall and he creates the <laughs> instrument that's going to let him become Robert Johnson, right? I just, I think that whole, that theme of innovation, but then also the fact that, he, that music is so fundamental to humanity, I just find absolutely fascinating and really quite inspirational. And you know, we talk about this a lot here on the show as as we sometimes learn about musicians, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, uh, whether it's 
whether it's us here being horrified that Eric Clapton or Van Morrison is a, an anti-vaxxer and anti-science, or I'm sure there are plenty of people uh, on the right who get upset that Bruce Springsteen, they just discovered, has a political point of view. Uh, are you able to to separate the artist from the music or, or in other genres, celebrate uh, actors from what they do in their personal life or things like that? I have to laugh at that because, of course, Born in the USA, if you actually listen to the lyrics, is, you know, any, you know, all it is is political, right? Mm. And and that's always been his thing since, you know, the 1970s is the decline of the, the steel towns and what that means both for the people in them and then what it means for the country in general. So whenever anyone's like, oh! He's political. That always sort of amuses me because one of the great things to teach is is born in the USA. Um, you know, that's a really complicated question, I think. But one of the things that I sort of came at a number of years ago when some actor um, was doing something completely untoward is that you have, in a sense, at least I feel like I have, in a sense, with people in different spheres, a contract. Like, my contract with actors is that they do their job, that they entertain me and or teach me something or whatever on the screen. I don't own what they do elsewhere. And I would like to say that's how I feel about these other, about, about musicians, for example. But it, I, I think it does, you know, I used to love Ted Nugent and I just can't listen to him anymore mm. because I've watched the videos where he's really attacking something I care so deeply about, which is American politics. So I think the principle that you have a contract with somebody and that's their job, they don't have to have to honor your morality outside of what that contract is, is a lovely principle. I find it's very hard for me to live with that. Well, now, of course, we were in uncharted territory there for a few years, but does that principle apply as well to politicians? Because not that many years ago, if you go back even to the Kennedy administration, the press didn't report on a lot of the things that were going on. And if you look at the the, the presidents through history who were unfaithful to spouses, that that's going to be a pretty large group of folks there. But we didn't know about that. Does that impact them? And I, I don't know the answer myself. Can you be can you be a good leader if you do things that are, are perhaps morally abhorrent? Well, I think we have to say that, yes, you can be simply because I suspect there's not a single person we can think of in the political realm who hasn't done something that we would find abhorrent at some time in some way. And my big example of that is that, you know, there isn't a lawmaker in our history who hasn't been sexist. I mean, really pretty over the top sexist. And yet, you know, I think Lincoln ended up doing a pretty good job. So I think that personally, I think that uh, one can be a good leader, but I, I, I think some of that stuff really matters. So the fact that Richard Nixon put Pat in the hospital and um, nobody thought it was worth reporting on is a real problem because we know the link now between domestic abuse and other forms of, uh, of political violence or political abuse. But the question is, who draws that line? And that's something I think it's really hard to figure. I mean, I'd love to tell you there's a really clear answer, but you know, does it, does how, what matters? and what mm. matters for the way that somebody leads the country. And I think different people disagree about what that what that line is. And I, I don't have a hard and fast one, except that there are certainly things that I think a lawmaker can do that I find makes them, to my mind, un unelectable. Other people seem to have different lines. 
I wonder, too, if, and I think a lot of this is post-Nixon, uh, we all want a free press. Well, most of us want a free press. But I wonder if we have some good people out there who choose not to run, especially for, for high-level elective office, uh, because they don't want to open up not only their own life, but the lives of their families to the endless media scrutiny. Absolutely. And that, I think, is a problem of the the media and also, at this point, the right-wing media. I think it's really important to remember um, that we don't have uh, uh, parallel radicalism in this country. We don't have a both sides problem. It's pretty clear, and I can tell you the history of why this happened, that the Republican Party, the right, has gone very far right. And one of the ways they have done that is by their use of the media. The left has not similarly polarized. They have stayed pretty much the same. If you look at, at the charts of political scientists and how people vote and, and what, uh, what principles they espouse, and one of the things that means is that there's been real asymmetric polarization of the media. So, you know, one of the things that really jumps out to me is right now is the incessant screams on the right about Hunter Biden. Well, Hunter Biden may or may not be a criminal. That's, you know, that's not for me to decide, but he's not in government. At the same time, there is a, a, a knee jerk, you know, you can't go after Trump's children. They were literally in the White House as advisors, and they're in their 40s. They are grown people. And that idea that, that what matters is the children, unless it's Hunter Biden. And that, that asymmetric polarization I, in terms of the media, I think, is a real problem because it leaves you with, what do you do? Do you fight back and say, well, wait a minute, what about this child? Or do you say, you know, there are things that are off limits? And I think what's off limits is people who are not involved in politics. We're talking with Heather Cox Richardson here on Downtown. We, we've been here before. We've been divided as a nation. But but in the past, and this ties into the discussion of the media, did we have a situation, have we had a situation like this, where a large percentage of the electorate basically is living in an alternative reality, not accepting the facts that I think the majority accept? Uh, yes, we have. And actually, it's very sad to me. I was thinking about this. Actually, I told you I was just out kayaking and thinking about this as one does when one is a historian. And that is in the 1850s in the American South, the elite enslavers. And by that, I mean, they were less than 1% of the American population. So even less than that in the, the, the um, uh, they're, they're a very small number of people in the American South. They're not the... The numbers of in, enslavers in the South are always a little bit hard to wrap your head around because most white people lived in proximity to an enslaved person. And, and I was very careful to say that because that could mean your dad uh, was the head of the household, mm. but you would live there. Um, but the people who really ran the South were those who enslaved more than 50 people. And they were really an oligarchy and they, they were called an oligarchy at the time. And they managed to monopolize the media system in the South quite literally by saying you can't deliver this kind of information if you have, for example, a book called the impending crisis and how to stop it, which was a call to poor whites to say, wait a minute, we got to push back against these guys at the top. If you had that, you were uh, you were in danger of being lynched or tarred and feathered. You couldn't have Uncle Tom's cabin. And they made sure that there was not an opportunity for people to listen, to, for example, to Abraham Lincoln and to to to, to have 
the media network that the system that they had be challenged in any way. And what they ended up with was a population that really believed their lies, but also that, and, and the reason I was thinking about this is that they, they sort of thought, I suspect, most of the white men and certainly the women in the South in the 1850s thought, oh, politics, it doesn't interest me. I'm not involved with it. You know, all I know is I want my guys to be in power without really thinking about that. And when the, the South Carolina takes the Confederacy out of the Union, and that's an interesting story as well, it's never put to a popular vote. Um, when they take them out of the Union, the, there's this, oh, rah, rah, I'm going to fight for my people, you know, and then within within months, it's very clear that the people who are going to be dying and losing their property are not that very small group of elites. Mm. They're going to be the people on the ground. And part of that is, to me, incredibly sad because I think you see the same dynamic now, the idea that somehow if you put these radical extremists into office, they're my people. But, you know, I suspect people in Russia would have said the exact same thing, uh, you know, two years ago. And now they're they're literally running for the exits as fast as they can so they don't become cannon fodder. And the other piece of that that really jumped out at me while I was thinking about it is one of the things that I worry a lot about is the real push on the on, in MAGA Republicans to force America to default in order to get their way on a lot of things. And again, just like the American South before the Civil War, the American South before the Civil War really was one of the wealthiest, most powerful regions in the world. And in four years, they turned it into a backwater from which it really never emerged. And you could argue with me about that after <laughs> World War II. And I look at that and I think, do you really want to go down a road where we stop being the default currency for the world, where we stop being the, the, the debt that is the most valuable in the world? Do you really want to walk away from the table? Because if you think this is going to make us more powerful rather than less, I got a really nice bridge in the cursed strait right now that I could sell to you. I wonder, too, if I were a political strategist, I think I would look at the GOP and say, wow, this is really short-sighted. If you want to maybe win this coming election, okay, but the future of your party isn't great when you embrace not only extreme views, but extremist candidates as well. Is this a similar place to where the Democrats were in the late 1800s? I think it is, yes. And actually, it's funny you say that because, you know, I'm a historian of the Republican Party, really kind of by accident. I started in this field talking about the Civil War, and you can't do the Civil War without doing the Republicans, and one thing led to another, and I became a historian of the Republican Party. And I'm, I, I, I love the Republican Party, which will, will probably surprise a lot of people, but they're my peeps at this point. Like, I know William Pitt Fessenden better than probably anybody else alive. And, you know, I've read everything that John Sherman wrote and who was uh, William Tecumseh Sherman's brother and a big fat, a big figure in the economy in the late 19th century. And I know what they thought and I know how they thought and I know how that party worked. So I have said for years that the Republican turn toward extremism, which really takes off in the 1990s under Newt Gingrich, is, is a terrible mistake because it 
is not a winning argument in the long term. It's a power argument, but it's a power argument that has, in fact, concentrated wealth really dramatically at the top of the scale. And that when the Republican Party decided to rebuild from the middle, as it did in under Teddy Roosevelt, as it did under Eisenhower, it would again become the, the grand old party. But until then, it was walking off a cliff. And when I wrote the, in 2014, when I wrote my big history of the Republican Party, people were furious that I said that because I you know I called it you could see the pieces moving and now of course we're in a moment when a number of former Republicans over the last you know since 2020 have have come out against the party and said we really need to rebuild this from the ground up and I find that fascinating because you say the Democrats did precisely that in the 1880s after the Confederates took power in 1879 and really tried to force through a program that looked very much like what the Confederacy had tried to do and they got shellacked uh, politically, nationally, and that's when you get the democratic turn toward the the urban areas and toward the idea of a government that's going to answer workers' needs, which becomes FDR and becomes absolutely unassailable. So I kind of hope we're in this moment, although that being said, you know, the, the Trumpers really have locked up a lot of the apparatus at the state level that is really undemocratic. And it's not clear to me that even if Americans turn against this party, it's going to be able, we're going to be able to throw them out and rebuild. And what they're doing doesn't seem to match the changing demographics of the country. But is that in many ways the impetus behind it for some of those MAGA Republicans? I think that's exactly right. You know, the, the the numbers haven't been there really since about 1986. We start to see voter suppression in 1986. It really takes off in 1994 after the Motor Voter Act of 1993. And, you know, at some point... Again, it's it's not just about the Republican Party, by the way. In any party system, you need to have at least two parties to have a, a successful democracy. And in any party system, when you stop having to appeal to people who don't like you, you start to become more radical because the only people you care about are those who could primary you from the right. And that is precisely what happened after the 1990s. We've been at the edge, the precipice of autocracy before. Are we closer than ever right now? What's different right now, I think, is that we have never been in a position where one of the major parties has embraced anti-democracy, has really rejected democracy. We certainly in the 1890s had a number of leading Americans who no longer believed in democracy. And from that, of course, we got new constitutions in all but one state across the country that restricted voting, not only of African-Americans, although that was, of course, the top issue for uh, for most of the state constitutions, but also of immigrants and also of poor white men. Women couldn't vote at that point at, an, at, a, uh, at a national level. So we have had something like this that led to voter suppression, which that's really interesting how that played out. But we have never had a, a majority of a major political party say, yeah, we're going to toss democracy overboard and we're going to rig our system to make sure that happens. The only other time we had something like that was, of course, with the Civil War. What percentage of people are, are we talking about? Because I, I know when when President Biden made his comments, uh, immediately uh, those in the right wing media uh, rose up and said, well, you just insulted half the country. And I thought, well, no, it's not. It's not half the country. But realistically, what percentage of people are in that extreme group? So it's so interesting you say that because just by chance, last night, I looked up the numbers. Um, <laughs> we really didn't plan this. Uh, we did look up the numbers and I did look up the numbers. And in middle, the middle of September, 
uh, September 16th, according to Gallup, uh, the number of people who self-identified as Republicans was about 30% of the country. The number that self-identified as Democrats was, I think it was about 27%. I, I, I literally don't have these numbers in front of me. But the number who self-identified as independents was 40%. Wow. And that I thought was interesting because political scientists will tell you there is no such thing as an independent, that it depends, that they call themselves independents, but there are various psychological reasons that one doesn't want to say, yeah, I'm really a Democrat or yeah, I'm really a Republican. But it could also be that we are approaching what you just identified, a moment in which we get a major realignment of those independents, which will mean a major realignment of the major political parties. I also find it ironic, too, that we're seeing this push toward uh, uh, Christian nationalism at a time when the number of people who identify as members of any kind of organized religion are declining nationwide. And, and I think the highest rate of decrease in those numbers is right here in the state of Maine. You know, that's a really important observation. And it's true, because one of the things that any political observer will tell you is that if, for example, a group feels like they're in power, they don't feel the need to squish everybody else because, you know, they're they're going to win. They don't have to 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 try and undercut their uh, their opponents. It's when they're they feel threatened that they feel the need to rig the system, if you will. And you know, one of the things I always think about when I think about that is uh, Vladimir Putin's reaction to Alexei Navalny. Now, if he really felt, that is, Putin really felt that he were in charge of Russia, he would not need to be persecuting Alexei Navalny because you can sort of pat the little people on the head and say, yes, yes, dear, go ahead and oppose <laughs> me because I know I'm going to win in a landslide. Um, I, I can afford to humor you because I know I'm in power. It's really when people feel like they're on the ropes that they begin to put in place the kinds of repressive legislation that we're seeing now. We talk a lot about it uh, here on the show, but the push in recent years has been to get uh, not those those national offices. Sure, the Republicans want to control the House and the Senate, but really they put additional focus into uh, not only elected jobs, but uh, uh, some of those volunteer jobs on, on voter uh, registration boards, being uh, election observers, local school boards and things of that sort. Is that part of an organized strategy to really uh, begin to impact policy from the ground up rather than from the top down? Yes, it is. It's a policy that has really taken off uh, since the Trump administration and during the Trump administration because Steve Bannon was very aware of how important that was. Steve Bannon being um, a former leader of Breitbart and now has the, the well, I guess I shouldn't do his advertising for him, but he is uh, um, an ally, I wouldn't say a friend, but an ally of former President Trump. But it's not a new strategy. This is actually one of the interesting things that came out of the Goldwater candidacy in 1964, because Goldwater recognized when the the leaders of both parties, really, but certainly the Republican Party turned against him and began to support his opponents, that he was best served by trying to whip up people at the ground level. Because the reality is most people do not pay attention to their local races. They do not pay attention to their states. They don't call their state reps. They don't complain. And that if you could get people, for example, to sit on the Texas school board, 
you could have a dramatic impact on textbooks, for example. That's where that whole movement came from. So the right, again, has been very good about that in a way that white Democrats have not been. Black Democrats actually have had a history of recognizing just how important things were at the local level. So the right certainly has tried to put a lot of effort into the school boards, the local school boards, and local town offices, for example. But that is almost never um, homegrown. That is part of a larger right. strategy. It is more homegrown or has been more homegrown until recently among the Democrats. That being said, there are now a number of uh, Democratic organizations that are trying to get people to turn out and show up, for example, for their state offices or their local offices. And, and of course, Republicans clearly understood better than Democrats the power and the import of getting people appointed to federal judgeships. Federal judgeships, which has been afoot since Ed Meese, since uh, mm. Reagan's attorney general Ed Meese started that in the 1980s, very deliberately. He said he was doing it. Um, so doing that, but also the, at the state level, the one of the important things about things that are happening at the state level is that if you, first of all, it's cheap to buy a state office. And I don't mean to, to bribe state legislators that people think that when you talk about corruption somebody's pocketing cash and maybe a few are but what i really mean is that it's much cheaper to elect to somebody to a state representative seat than it is to elect somebody to a national level you it's just much cheaper the flyers are cheaper you have to have much less airtime you know it's just a much cheaper proposition so beginning in 2010, the Republicans launched a project called Operation Red Map, called uh, Republican Redistri Redistricting Majority Project, which was designed to take over the state houses so they could then take over redistricting. So then even if they lost the popular vote at the state level, they would still control a majority of the seats in the state houses and also then in the House of Representatives. And it's really pretty dramatic. In 2012 in Pennsylvania, the Democrats for state offices won, I believe it was 51.5% of the vote. This is off the top of my head. I don't have it in front of me. But they got something like 38% of the seats in that state house. And so one of the things that has put us in the position we're in now is the undemocratic nature of state houses at this point. And it was very easy to do. Now, there's no reason, it seems to me, that you couldn't do the opposite, that the Democrats couldn't organize at that level and do the opposite. Um, but that's that's where we are right now and how we got there. We're talking with Heather Cox Richardson here on Downtown. All right, uh, kind of a personal question here as you uh, get going each each evening to start working on the letters. Is there one aspect of the American story right now that tires you out, that makes you say, oh, I have to write about this again? It's exhausting. It's not so much that because I find the whole tapestry fascinating. It is more that I, I, the thing that is hard for people like me is watching the ball roll and pick up steam and, and have so many people still not see it. Because literally people who study politics have seen this moment coming and have been screaming about it now for decades. So, for example, I wrote a column last night about uh, some of the extremist rhetoric coming out of the current crop of MAGA Republicans. And I didn't even put all that much stuff in it because, to be honest, I was trying to do something else at the same time. And people seemed horrified by that. And, oh, my God, this is the worst thing I've ever read. And, and part of me is like, at this point, how can you not see it? Because <laughs> um, I tend to be Pollyannish. And 
and even I mean, even I've been able to see it for a long time. So I think that's what tires me out. It's like, yeah, they said something else that was completely over the top again. And I, I, I hate having to pay attention to that day after day after day, but it's important too. What do you do to get away from it all to unwind? Do you, uh, do you read a book? Do you listen to music? Obviously you go kayaking. What are the ways you escape all of this? Music is always on. Um, so that that's there. You know, honestly, I've been going way too hard for three years now. So in the past, I would have knit, knitted, knit. I don't know what the past tense of knit is. <laughs> I knit. Um, I cook. I bake. I'm a big baker. Um, and so I would procrastinate bake, as they say. Uh, lots of outside time. But most of the time these days, I'm tied to a machine just because it's hard to watch the news. You have to watch the news all day to see what's happening. You have and, a, you know, if you start if you start writing early, you got to pray nothing else happens right, after you've right. already written. <laughs> right. <laughs> do you uh, do you have a, a potential release date for the new book? Yeah, it'll be out in a year. Excellent. And then I'll tell you more about it when we get closer. That sounds great. And and I have to ask you too. What what's a good main getaway? Is there a place that you, when you have the time, when you're not tied to that computer, a place in the state uh, where you can just uh, get away, absorb nature, get some peace? Well, of course, I live in paradise, so I my my happy place is staying home. It's my my lobster fisherman partner partner who's like, let's hit the road, let's go somewhere. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I I absolutely love Tumble Down Mountain. Uh, it's my favorite mountain in the state. Although I should not say I have a favorite because that'll upset people from other places. <laughs> um, I love the Rockland Breakwater. Uh, that's huge for me. Morse's Mountain is the the walk down Morse's Mountain is one of my absolute favorites as well. And and then there's our art museums and our historical collections, which are really fabulous. And I don't just mean the biggies that people know about, Maine Historical, for example. I mean the town historical mm. associations are, are, you know, I try and work every year at the Yarmouth Library and go over to the Yarmouth um, Historical Society. And anytime I'm in a town, I try and hit their historical societies. Well, Heather, it's wonderful to catch up with you. We appreciate it so much. I want to mention, of course, that you'll be at the University of Maine on Friday, uh, 3 o'clock at the Collins Center with Brian Naylor, uh, discussing the future of the humanities, a celebration of a decade of the uh, McGillicuddy Humanities Center. So uh, check that out. And of course, subscribe to the newsletter, follow Heather on Twitter and be looking for that book down the road in a year. Good to talk with you again. Good to see you face to face. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Sorry it took us so long to make this work, but yeah. we'll do it again soon. Heather Cox Richardson talking with us here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll pause for a moment. A word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, author David Baldacci next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets Strength. We're running with the shadows of the night. So, baby, take my hand, it'll be alright. Surrender all your dreams to me tonight. They'll come true in the end. We're back on Downtown the Podcast. Our next guest, a best selling author who has now published three books this year alone. The new one 
is a terrific read called Long Shadows. Here's David Baldacci on Downtown. Well, hello there, David. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Uh, I have to ask you an important question up front here because uh, our, our town, Bangor, Maine, we have a ton of Baldacci's, including our former governor. Now, they claim to be related to you. Do you uh, admit to that? Do you claim them? Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I know John. I've known John for a long time. He's a great guy. He's a great congressman and a great governor. And I like to say that there are a lot of Balducci's, but there aren't that many Baldacci's. So I think we're all related in, in some way. And uh, John's a good friend and his, his family, wonderful family. Absolutely. I grew up with uh, with the Baldacci family. Well, it's great to have you with us today. The new book is so good, Long Shadows. Uh, man, what what an opening to the book. You You pulled me in pretty quickly there. Yeah, I did. I, you know, I really like to hit the ground running with my novels, and this is a way to sort of set up Decker for what was going to keep coming at him in waves in this novel. And that was change. Um, so, in the opening chapters, he suffers a really traumatic experience uh, involving somebody very close to him, and then on top of that, he is receives news that he has a brand new partner. Uh, he, that he doesn't want. Her name is Freddie White. She's from the Baltimore office. And then as they're butting heads and not getting along, they find out they have to fly to South Florida because a federal judge and her bodyguard have been found murdered in the judge's home. And they have to fly down and try to figure this out. And this is the only time I've written about Amos Decker where he's not really sure he wants to take another case on. He's not sure he wants to do this anymore. So he's not on his A game from the, from the get-go. And uh, so things have to happen in, the, in this book, and they do, that really shake him up. And I really enjoy creating Freddie's character. She is she's a spitfire. She's a dynamo. She goes toe-to-toe with this huge guy, and uh, she gives as good as she gets. Yeah, and uh, it seems like uh, bringing Freddie in gives you a chance to explore uh, some new aspects of Amos's character. Really does because she pushes and pushes and pushes and, and makes him think about things and maybe he doesn't want to think about. And also, I you know I love Freddie for the fact that um, she allowed me to use a classic line for one of my favorite movies of all time, <laughs> and I finally got to use it. I've been waiting twenty years, and uh, she delivers it, and it's just a hell of a scene. <laughs> so Amos is is such a popular character, but, but what do you like about him? I like what I like about Decker is he's totally unpredictable. Even even though I created him and I read all the scenes and I read all his dialogue and it's all interior monologue, sometimes I don't know what the guy's going to do, you know. And um, that for me is a cool thing as a writer because it keeps me on my toes and you know I don't have everything figured out and you know, everything is neat and nice and organized and tied with a bow, which you don't really want when you're writing a mystery and a thriller. You want things to be unexpected. So he's the guy who throws curveballs at me. Um, and I've, you know, I've written a line of dialogue for the guy, and then it's like he slapped me upside the head and said, you know, are you kidding me? I would never would have said that. And, you know, I go and I delete it and I write something else. And he looks at me and goes, okay, we can move on. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you know a character that well, when you find that voice, do, do the characters often lead you to unexpected places? They they absolutely do. I mean, in, in, in this book, uh, in particular, for sure, because he, you know, he's dealing with a bunch of stuff that he doesn't want to deal with right now. And the biggest thing is that he seems like he's lost his drive. The one thing that drives Amos Decker more than anything else is if somebody does something bad, they need to be held accountable. And he's the one that's going to do it. And he's never wavered from that. That's his mantra in the preceding six books. And this one, he's not sure he wants to do this anymore. He's not sure he's up for it. He's not sure that the, the belly fire is still there. And then for me, as I'm writing this novel, I'm wondering, 
is the big guy going to get the belly fire back? I'm not sure at this point. Where where is he going to take me? Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it all sort of worked out. Uh, Decker, of course, has the gift and the curse of perfect recall. Is that something you would ever want? No, I mean, I have a pretty good memory. I don't I don't have a photographic memory uh, for the most part. Some things, yes, but most things, no. But no, because most of us have things we'd rather forget or we'd rather let time fade. Um, and for him, time doesn't fade anything. You know, So bad things that happened to him 20 years ago feel like they just happened to him. So I, I would imagine that is a heavy burden to bear. We're talking with David Baldacci here on Downtown. How do you know when you've uh, you reached the end of the line, when a character has run their course? When you sit down and thinking about a new story for them, and there's no fresh meat left on the bone, there's no juice mm. left in the lemon to squeeze out. You've got everything, the person, they had no more to give you. Um, then I think that's when it's time you know, to retire them and move on to something else. Because the last thing you want to do is go in a lackluster manner into writing another book with not a lot of fresh stuff, no way to evolve the character, no new stuff to show of the character, and just put them into another plot, another case to solve. Because then it'll, it'll start reading like all the other books. And you don't want that. You're not going to be as energetic, not as enthusiastic. Your belly fire as the writer and creator is not going to be there. So you're not going to be writing from your A game. Um, and it's just, you know, do I have do I have more questions about the character? Does the character have more to give me and the readers? And if I scratch under the surface, is it going to be more meat under there? Uh, and if not, then it's time to move on. You know, Stephen King owns our radio station. And, and much like Steve, you uh, you have been so incredibly productive and, and prolific lately. What, what's the key to that for you? Do you have a daily writing schedule? I think the key for me is I've never looked at writing as a job. I wrote for years and never made a penny off of it. I just wrote for the love of writing because storytelling was such an intimate part of my life. And I haven't changed that perspective over the years. I don't I don't look at it as I turn in a book and I get a paycheck. I sit I sit down and I write because I just want to write. That's how I want to spend my time. So because of that love and that drive, I spend a lot of time writing. You know, I've written three books this year. This is the third one. Um, it's not because I had a preset schedule or a contract to do it. It's because I had three ideas for th- three different stories, and off I went and wrote them that I was very excited about. So really it's just how I approach you know, the craft of writing, never a job, not a hobby, not even a passion. It's more like this is who I identify as. You know, I can't separate me from the writer. It's just we're all in one little ball. Uh, David, can you talk a little bit about the work you do through the uh, Wish You Well Foundation? Yeah, my wife and I started it over 20 years ago. We fund literacy organizations, programs, and efforts across the country. Our job is to eradicate illiteracy in the United States. That's our mission. We have a huge illiteracy problem. We're, you know, half the adult population read at the two lowest levels of literacy. Um, and when you have uh, generational illiteracy, which I like to call it, you also have generational poverty. Illiteracy and poverty go hand in hand. If you can't read at a high level, chances are very high that you're going to be non-self-sustaining. Uh, that you're going to be, you know, on government programs that will, will help you through difficult times. Our job is to make people, give them the tools to reach their full potential. Um, and, and as an aside, you know, not even from the economic benefits, being a reader uh, will make you a better person, more tolerant, more empathetic, more understanding, more well-rounded, have a broader horizon on humankind than people who don't read. You know, Mark Twain, there's a famous t- quote, that he wrote, uh, that he came up with, and said, travel is fatal to prejudice. He was the most traveled man of the generation, traveled the world. Um, but for those of you who don't have time to travel, you can 
travel the world through books. And you can see lots of different people who don't look like you, read like you, pray like you, eat like you, speak like you. But you'll understand that we all share the common, the common core of humanity. Um, and that's a perspective I had since I was a little kid when the world of books was introduced to me. And I want to make sure that every person in this country has that same opportunity. Well, is it a stretch at all to say that uh, literacy also helps protect the democracy? You can't have one without the other. If you don't have an informed electorate making good decisions based on fact and truth, uh, you don't have a democracy. Um, and that's just the way it's going to be. Um, and we live in an information age, and we live in a disinformation age, the likes of which we have never seen before. And so for people who have nothing, no context with which to evaluate all this stuff flying at them, um, they can believe things that aren't true. They can go to rabbit holes. They shouldn't be going down. People talk about, you know, you want to eat superfoods for your diet to make sure you're physically healthy. I would say that books are superfoods, superfood for your mind and your soul. And you can you can have superfoods to make you physically healthy. If you're not reading books to make you emotionally and mentally healthy, then um, you're going to curl up and die emotionally and mentally um, without that type of superfood, without that substance. Um, and it's really the only thing that keeps our democracy alive. And along those same lines, uh, your Feeding Body and Mind Initiative uh, donates books to food banks around the country. And I, I think that's great because I feel that uh, those who are uh, most at risk are often uh, left out when it comes to access to reading and books as well. They, they absolutely are. You know, in, the, in this country, the school systems and the funding they get are based on where those schools are. It's local funding. In other countries, you know, you have a certain amount of money set aside for education and, and, and the different places get the same amount. So if you live in a rich area, your schools have a lot of money. If you live in a poor area, your schools don't have a lot of money. And that makes for a disparity in inequality and inequities that are detrimental to all of us um, because those breed, you know, you can tie illiteracy to pretty much all the societal problems we have, everything from drugs to crime, incarceration, um, because when you take people out of the mainstream um, because they don't have the ability to read, they don't have a good education, then you they you narrow the opportunities that they have and the choices they can make. So if you broaden those choices and make things far more equitable, all of our other problems really go away. I'm a high school teacher, and, and the attacks that we see on books uh, in education in America are certainly scary from our perspective. What's it like from the perspective of a writer? It's, it's totally beyond the pale. Um, in 2022, I never thought that I'd be talking about book banning and book burning. And uh, I'm a student of history, and people who read, you know, they have, again, they have context of which to evaluate this. There have been many instances through history of people rising up and saying, we need to ban books, we need to burn these books. None of them ever had a positive outcome. All of them actually had a cataclysmic outcome for humankind at various levels. So this playbook has been done before. This is nothing new. Um, and I fear that the, the results that we're going to see are going to parallel what's happened in the past. Um, saying that books are bad for people, that books shouldn't be in libraries. My point is, in a library, people get to choose the books they want to read. And telling someone, you know, there's something bad in that book, don't read it. I'm, I'm wondering, are, are, are parents monitoring their kids' activities online? Because I can tell you for a fact that the stuff they can have read, readily access on, online, there's nothing in a book that would compare to that stuff. Um, so you can say, well, they can be exposed to one, but, but not the other. 
So for me, telling people, you know, not to read books, not to read certain books, is deprive them of the freedoms they have, you know, to pursue their own intellectual pursuits and their own choices. Um, and that never ends well. Absolutely. Uh, well, David, uh, it's wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for the good work you're doing. The new book, Long Shadows, absolutely terrific. Uh, more more adventures with the memory man, Amos Decker. Thank you yes. so much for making time for us today, David. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. David Baldacci talking with us about his new book, Long Shadows, and more. Our thanks to David, and thanks to uh, historian Heather Cox Richardson as well for joining us this week on the podcast. And thanks to you. By the way, if you get a moment, we sure would appreciate it if you'd leave a review of the podcast. That would be great. Five stars would be you know, the best. That would, We'd appreciate that a whole lot. But spread the word. Tell your friends. If you uh, haven't subscribed yet, please do. And get some other folks to do the same, and it would be much appreciated. Otherwise, we'll see you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.